Well, Tim, uh, Tim had told me that the last couple weeks you've been exploring uh, some of the strategies of our enemy. Um, an enemy that loves to torment and tempt God's people. And we, we want to try to look at kind of the flip side of that the next couple weeks. And I want to talk about the home team, if you will. Uh, that would be us. And, and more than that, our coach, Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things I found to be interesting um, with sports is uh, it's helpful to know your enemy, isn't it? I mean, it's very, very helpful. And that's what you've been examining the last couple weeks. Sometimes one of the things the enemy will do is he'll, the, the enemy will trash talk. Like if you ever play sports, you know what that's like. They'll say, hey, hey, coach, they're, they're trashing our team, you know. And they want to try to intimidate you in those kinds of things. Well, what is true in the arena, sports arena, is so often true in the spiritual arena too, where, where we will be, there will be trash talk against Christianity. We live in a world, as you know, as you know where in the secular arena, um, people will tell you, look, if you, uh, if you have a relationship with Christ and if that kind of works for you, that, that's, that's good, you know. But really, Christ is just a myth anyway. You ever hear anybody tell you that? I mean, it's just not really true. It's, but if it works for you, that's, that, that's kind of nice. And what happens is the supremacy of Christ is kind of put down, isn't it? Or others will say something like this. You know, when it comes to really helping you in, your, in the core of your soul, religion's okay. But psychology is the real answer. I mean, what you really need is psychology. And look, I'm not questioning that there's some benefits with psychology. Of course, I understand that. But do you know what I'm saying? There's this, there's this way in which the world will often say, oh, the Christ thing is okay, but either you need to replace Christ with something more important, or at best, you need to add something to Christ. Because he's really not enough. If you've ever had those thoughts, you're in good company. Because they're the same kinds of temptations that the Christians are facing at Colossae. There has been a, an attack from the enemy that has said, Christ is not enough. Now, the way it manifested itself in the first century is different from the way it manifests itself today. Fair enough. But the statements are the same. I mean, do you really think... You can live a life of faith, follow Jesus, and life will be meaningful? Do you really think that? We should, right? But the world around us says, oh, come on. That doesn't quite work. Yes, it does, folks. And Paul has penned an entire book telling us Christ is enough. What I'd like to do in the next three weeks is um, I want to look at the prayer that, start, that Paul begins in, in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Kind of use that to summarize the first two chapters, if you will. So we're going to go a little bit quick this morning. So hold on, stay with me. Um, and then in the next two weeks, I want to speak about the really practical sections in chapter 3 and 4. So that, that's kind of where we're going. So, so hold on, let's have a word of prayer as we look at this marvelous, marvelous text about Christ. And, uh, you know, before we pray, I, I do want to say this. I know I say it every time, but... Worship team, thank you so much for leading us in worship. Uh, that, that was just, that was really, my heart is always blessed. Um, I love it because I'm sitting with my kids 
and they're just singing their hearts out. Isn't that great? And so I want to thank you. I, sometimes I feel like I should just get up and close in a word of prayer after the worship service, but we won't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it was a great blessing, and I want to just thank you so much for that. Lord, guide us now as we look into your word. Father, we desperately need the words of Colossians right now in our lives. We, we are attacked on a daily basis with the fact that Christ is not enough. Lord, invigorate our hearts. Take us to the cross. Show us your glory. And Lord, help us to realize that Christ is enough. May that then change the way we live with one another and the way we face the circumstances of life. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Let me, uh, let me read the prayer for you that we find in Colossians chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 9 and following. Let me read through it, and then I want to go back, and I want to break it down basically into two sections. It, one, one, you, you may know this, but let me just tell you if you don't. One, uh, when, when I was growing up, I got, came to faith in Christ when I was eight, just a young child. And when I, when I used to read my New Testament, especially the epistles, when I would read an epistle, you know, it would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I know that. And writing to these people call, from Colossae, like, who is that? Who cares, you know? And then I read, he says, look, I'm thankful for this, and I pray this. And I, I'd always think to myself, I want to get through all that stuff because I'm not them. I don't know them. Who cares about that stuff? Get, get me to the body and so I can find out what's going on. And I was miserably wrong. And one of the things you'll find, especially when you read through Paul's epistles, read specifically the prayers of Paul that you find in the first chapter. Because they often become clues to what he actually wants to say in the rest of the letter. And that's exactly what happens here. Listen to what he says. As he talks to this beleaguer, this group of this fledging church who's struggling with uh, an outside force that is saying Jesus is not enough. Listen to what he says. Verse 9. After he's thanked God for the fact that they're believers and God is at work in their life. He says this, because of this, we also, from the day which we heard, do not cease praying concerning you and asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so as to walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all strength according to the might of his glory for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who qualified you for the share of the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then it continues. We'll just end there. This is what Paul does. Paul says, you know, I'm really concerned the way you live. I'm concerned about your behavior, but, but in my prayer for you, where it all begins is what is it that you actually believe? And he doesn't mean by that a cognitive assent. And if I say like, uh, you know, do you believe in Jesus? I know lost people that will say, yeah, I believe kind of assent to the fact that there was this Jesus character who even died on the cross, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't mean that. He's talking about a belief that is not just something that's kind of looking at something else, but it's something that's very personal. 
And where he begins is he says, you know, Paul says, when I pray for you guys, I pray that verse 9, from the, from the first day that I heard of you and your faith, etc., etc., I don't stop praying concerning you that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It always starts with belief before it moves to behavior. And, and notice exactly what he says here. He says, what I want you to be filled with is the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Like, what in the world does that mean, folks? Um, years ago, I think if you would have asked me what that meant, and I hadn't really thought about it, I would have said something like, well, I guess that means I want to know God's individual will for my life or something like that. That's not at all what Paul's talking about here. You know what Paul's talking about? Paul's saying, you know what? And I want to read some of the verses to you. Paul says, more than anything else, what I want you to do is in the very core of your heart is to believe, to hold on to, to be committed to the fact that God has a plan that's all about his son that started way in eternity past and was fulfilled in the cross, is continuing to move to the end when he actually comes back and you are part of that plan. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will, of his plan, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, yes, there's understanding, there's cognitive, but there's wisdom that says I'm able to take that stuff and put it directly into my life. Paul says, I pray every day for you, Colossians, that you might know that. And then as he continues in his book, notice what he does. Look, um, look, if you would, down to verse 15. Well, one of the things I love about Paul when he writes um, his epistles is he often says something that makes him think of something and he kind of goes off on a divine rabbit trail. You know? It's divine. It's of God. I, I know that. But, but you read through Paul's epistles, man. He's just like, he often will say something and boop, he'll be gone. And it'll come back again and then he'll say something and he, he takes off again. In verses 15 and following, Paul takes off. He's got to the end of this prayer, and he's talking about Jesus. And when he starts talking about Jesus, he says, you know what? <laughs> Before I do anything else, i got to just talk to you about Jesus for a little bit. I mean, I just, sorry, you know. And he does. He takes off. Look at what he does in verse 15. Notice what it says. He's, he's, he, this prayer, you don't always know exactly where the prayer has ended. Well, it's ended. But he said something about Jesus, and he just, he's off. Listen to what he says about Christ. Because the enemy says Christ is not enough. And Paul says, are you kidding me? I want you to pull back for just a second. And in the very core of your heart, I want you to see Jesus. And, and notice who he is. He will talk about Christ in relationship to creation. And Christ in relationship to redemption. In light of creation, look at what he says here in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. You know, do you remember back in Exodus when Moses could not even look at God as he passed by? Remember that passage in Exodus? And, and, and you can never actually see God. And the Gospel of John says, God has come and he's tabernacled among us. And you can see all the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where he starts. He says, man, when I think of Jesus, I think of God becoming a man and showing us God. Wow. He's, just, he, he's overwhelmed by it. He's the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn of all creation. Folks, that doesn't mean he was ever created, okay? You ever talk to Jehovah's Witnesses? They love to go to this passage. You know, they're like, well, see, he's the firstborn of creation. It means he's preeminent over creation. That's the idea. Because it's going to go on to describe him as creator. Listen to what it says. So um, he's the image of the image of God, the firstborn of creation, because in him all things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and all things have been held together in him. You know what he says? Paul says, I, I want you to believe in the very core of your heart that Jesus is enough. And I want you to see God's plan through Jesus. But before I tell you about the plan, I just want to tell you about Jesus. And when you think about Jesus in light of creation, he was the one that created everything. I mean, you, you know, Tim talked to you about the hordes of hell and the demons and, and all those things. Well, you know, when they were at one point angels, right? God created them. So now, have, they, have some of them gone astray? Absolutely. And we suffer because of it. But at the end of the day, the point is Christ is over everything. And one day he, he will defeat and destroy them too in his time, in his way, as he sees fit. The point is everything that breathes, everything that lives, it's because of Christ. And he is the one for whom it was created. He is the one who sustains it. And he is the one who will correct it one day. And Paul says, you know, I don't care what people and what movements and what philosophies say in your world. Christ is enough. God has a wonderful plan, and it's all about him. And when you think of Christ, think of the great creator God, because that's exactly who he is. But not just that. Not just that. Look at what he goes on to say as the text develops, as he's talking about Christ. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body the church, us, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He died and he rose again so that he might be having the first place or the preeminence in everything because in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. When you saw Christ walking on the earth, you saw God. And through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, as the text goes on, you know what he says? Jesus is creator. But the world went astray. The world has fallen. The world is filled with all kinds of sinners doing their own thing, going their own way. And you know what? Every one of us was born that way, right? Every one of us. And he says, the whole world is going his own way, doing the whole thing. And God in heaven said, this, this world that has rebelled against me is the world I love. And God the Son came and lived a perfect life. And the Bible says he is about reconciling, reconciling the entire world. Now, if you know Christ as your Savior, you've been reconciled to him by believing in him, haven't you? But one day, everything will be reconciled to God. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to trust Christ. doesn't mean the demons are going to come back and fall down before him. You know what it does mean? One day in the future, when God comes back and writes all the wrongs and sets everything straight, 
everything will be reconciled because evil will be judged, the creation will be redone, and he will take all glory for himself. That's the plan. That's my son. Paul says, I don't care what people say to you. I don't care when they come up and they say, Christ isn't enough. You've got to add to him or you've got to substitute him. I don't care about any of that. Christ is all you need. Look at him in light of creation. Look at him in light of redemption. Look at God's plan through Christ. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Notice what he says. Paul, in, in verses 24 into chapter 2, Paul's talking about his own ministry because, you know, after he talks about Christ, he picks up in verse 24 and he basically says, you know what? One of the most unbelievable things in my life, Paul says, is that God has chosen to actually use me as an apostle. It just, it absolutely overwhelms me that God would use me. And he begins to describe what God has done by using him. uh, And he says this in verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul says, you know what? Let me tell you something. In the Old Testament era, God did everything through the Jewish nation, didn't he? His promises came through them, etc., etc. But all of that, he says, pointed to Christ. And in the New Testament era, does God work now through the Jewish nation? No. God works through us. You don't have to be Jewish. You can be Jewish. You can be Gentile. It doesn't matter. And one of the things he says is, you know, God's plan is all about moving to this point in history where Christ comes and Christ saves, and Christ redeems, and he turns the entire world upside down and forms his church. And we now, folks, are part of something that ultimately means victory. (laughs) Um, I think I may have even told you this before. Um, I I like football. My dad is an avid football viewer. He just, like when they do the draft, I don't know about you, but my dad, like on that Saturday, he'll call me up and he'll say, son, I'd rather you not call me today because I'm watching the draft all day. Now, I don't know about you, but that would bore me out of my mind. I mean, I don't mind watching the guys on the field, but watching the draft. But So he's an avid football player. I would much rather watch a game after I know the Eagles. Sorry, sorry. If, after I know the Eagles are going to win, and then I don't mind watching highlights of that game because, you know, I'm totally relaxed. I mean, they can be behind at halftime, which is not all unusual. But I know how it's going to end. And so do we, don't we? We know how it's all going to end, folks. God has this glorious hope that comes in His Son. And His Son has come into history to redeem and to change people. And one day He'll change the entire creation. And Paul says, man, I'm part of this thing. Jesus is all that we need. His plan is not only about what Christ has done in history, it's about what God and Christ has done in your own life, though, too. Because when he gets to chapter 3 and 4, and even in chapter 2, I should, should, should not just chapter 3 and 4, when you get into chapter 2, 3, and 4, Paul's going to say, you know what? Listen to me. 
Paul's going to say. Jesus has done a whole series of things in your life in chapter 2. He's redeemed you. He's bought you back. He's forgiven you. Matter of fact, when he talks about forgiveness in chapter 2, one of the expressions that he uses, which I think is really cool. Matter of fact, flip over there for just a second. Look at this. Is, this is really neat. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If you were living in the ancient world and the Romans condemned you to death, you know one of the things they would often do? They would put a placard right above the cross when they killed you, and it would list all the, all the offenses that you have committed against the Roman government. And they would say, basically, there it is, man. You're dying because you deserve it. You know what Colossians, Paul says in Colossians? This God who has sent his son, who is the only hope of all eternity, individually loves you. And you know what he did for Doug Finkbeiner? If you would look across, above the cross of Christ, if you look real close from God's perspective, what you would see is Doug Finkbeiner, liar. Doug Finkbeiner, stealer. Doug Finkbeiner, greedy. Right down the line, one sin after another. All of that stuff that normally would indict a criminal, that would indict me, was taken and nailed to his cross. So that he paid for all of that for me. Isn't that unbelievable? I mean, that's the hope of the gospel, isn't it, folks? I can't do anything about my sin. And Jesus says, Doug, all of the offenses, not against the Roman government, but against God himself, was nailed to my cross. And because of that, Doug, you were totally forgiven. And so th this book tells us, if Christ can forgive you from your sins, do you think he can maybe give you victory over your sins? Do you think he can kind of help you live like a different life if he can forgive them all? He says, look, I've been united to Christ. I mean, positionally, God looks at me now and what he sees is a righteous person. Am I perfectly righteous now? No, ask my kids. Can ask anybody about that? But, but I've been so connected to God that his righteousness has been placed on me. And my sins have been placed on him so that I can be forgiven. And Paul says, do not listen to people who tell you Christ is not enough. He's forgiven you. He's been united to you. You are his. He can change you. He can give you purpose and meaning in life. Don't let anybody tell you anything any different. So Paul begins this prayer by saying, and it, relax, I, I know we're not quite through the prayer, but I'm going to move rather quickly now. But Paul says this. You know what I pray more than anything else? I want you to be filled to the brim with this experiential knowledge, this belief in the core of your soul that says, I believe God's plan. I believe God's plan is all about Jesus, not only in history, but in my own personal life. And I believe he's all I need. And you know what happens 
when we really do live our lives around Jesus like that? Paul gives um, four characteristics here in this prayer. Notice what they are. He says in verse 10, when, when you know this, you are then in a position where you can walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. And you know, you've known it in your life. And, you know, and maybe you're experiencing it right now. I pray you are. But if you're like me, I wax and wane. There are times in my life when I get up and sometimes Christianity is just merely a duty for me to kind of do that day. You know what I mean? I just kind of trudge through it. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And look, if that's sometimes all you got, then that's what you go for. You know, you say, God, I feel only like duty today, but here I am, help me. And, you, and that's what you do. That's all you can do. But there are other times, and maybe it was your experience today as we were worshiping together, where in your soul as you're singing these praises to God, where you say to yourself, I want to live my whole week that way. Don't you feel that way sometimes? I wish I could take this as a little microcosm and kind of live my whole week having the same feeling I have right now as we're singing to God. Well, I think we often feel that way. And Paul says, yeah, that's how I pray for you. <laughs> that's what I want you to have. I want you to go out and whatever situations of life you're facing, I want you to say in the core of your soul, Jesus is enough. He's worked through history. He's in my life. It's Jesus. I'm just, Lord, I just want to please you in the way that I walk. Paul says, yeah, that's how it works. When you believe this way, then you begin to behave this way. You begin to walk in a way that's not only worthy of the Lord, because it's Christocentric, but you're also wanting to please him. And he gives four characteristics of that pleasing life. Look what they are. Notice what he says. The first one is what we might call pervasive productivity in my acts. Look at verse, uh, verse 10a. Notice what he says. So as to walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work. You know what he's saying? I am, um, through the years, and I, I've known the, the temptation in my own life, but through the years I've worked with a lot of Christians who struggle who have learned to compartmentalize their spiritual lives. And, and, and when I see them on Sunday, I think to myself, man, that person must be stellar. I mean, what we, our, our conversations are so wonderful. And what happens is they really do do the spiritual thing on Sunday. But then it makes no difference Monday afternoon at work when their integrity is being questioned. Or, or Thursday night at home when they have tension with their mate or one of their children. And for some reason, they compartmentalize. They love to sing the hymns, but they, what they forget is worship is not only an act of adoration, it should be something that we do throughout our life, right? And that's what Paul's saying. I want you to so believe this, so you walk in a way where you are pervasively productive. You are pervasively productive in church and at home and in the community, and at work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to be somebody who seeks to live Christ everywhere. No compartmentalizing. Jesus is central in everything I do. What else, Paul? Not only is there per pervasive productivity in my acts, my deeds, but there's increasing intimacy with God in, in my soul. Look at what he says in 10b bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. So what he says is this. Look, um, 
You never get to the point in your life where your belief about God and Jesus and what he's done, uh, you can just kind of shift into neutral. Because what I want you to do is I want you to be filled with that in such a way that it moves you out into your life and you begin to say, God, I want to honor you in everything I do. And Lord, as that's the case, I want to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper with you. Now, folks, how do we do that? I mean, and, and, and I'll come back to the tried and true way that you probably have heard for ever since you've been a Christian, which is being in this book. You know, I mean, oh, there's a new one. I never heard that before, right? No, I mean, isn't it true? I mean, because you and I are bombarded with false messages and other kinds of messages all the time. I mean, I worry a little bit sometimes with my kids, with all the gadgets and technology. I don't know about you. I mean, they're texting, and they want to see this, and they want this thrill and that thrill, and blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I want to say, you know, the Bible talks about something called meditation, where you, like, put everything aside for a little bit and just, like, sit and think about God. How do you do that with a generation that's growing up with instant gratification all the time, blah, blah, blah? I, it, it's a, hey, I don't know about you, but it's a challenge as I work with my kids on this stuff. It's tough. It's tough for me because I'm part of that culture too. And God says, look, if you're going to think my ways, you've got to be in my book. And, 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 and there's no way to go closer and go deeper with God apart from Scripture. There's just no way to do it. So he says, look, every way imaginable, listen to it, read it meditate upon it, talk to people about it, listen to songs that promote it, but be people of this book because you'll not change any other way. Um, I probably have shared this with you before in some other setting, I don't remember, but I, when, when, when I think about reading of the scriptures, um, I don't know if I use this analogy, meditation, um, meditation is like eating a jawbreaker. I, you remember the jawbreaker? I don't eat them much anymore, but does everybody know what a jawbreaker is? Younger generation, do you know guys know what Do they still have jawbreakers? Okay. I don't eat them because they break my teeth. But, <laughs> but when I was a kid, I used to love those jawbreakers, and I'd stick it in my mouth and be like, it took forever to eat that thing. Now, compare that to flipping a, a Cheerio in your mouth. And that baby's going just like that, isn't it? Meditation is eating jawbreakers not Cheerios. And there, there's, there's no shortcut for reading this book and just praying through what you're reading. I don't know about you, but, but what I'm reading, especially parts of the Old Testament, I'll sometimes, I mean, I'll just talk to God as I'm reading. I'll be reading along and say, Lord, I don't understand that at all. Or why did you allow that to happen? Like, what's happened? You know, talk to him. He's the author anyway, right? And the point is, turn this book into an opportunity to get to know your God better. Because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. When, um, when my wife used to, when we were dating, and she would write me a note, um, man, did I ever learn, I, I, I maybe I've told you this, but when I, in seminary we talk about the importance of exegeting the word, understanding it, et cetera, et cetera. And I tell the guys in seminary that I learned how to exegete the Bible from reading love letters in college, you know, with my wife. Because she would write me a letter and I would, say, you know, dear Doug, I had a wonderful time with you today. And I'd say, well, that's pretty cool, you know, wonderful. I, 
You know, what, what this wonderful mean to her. And yeah, I mean, every word she said, I was like, hey, whoa, whoa. I'm a little bit concerned. Concerned about what? what, what what's she concerned about here? No, okay, you know, what's it? Okay, I got What's she mean by that? You've done that, haven't you, with letters? We scrutinize everything. And, you know, if it's your first time dating somebody, you're always concerned about how they sign the thing. Because if they say in Christ, that may be spiritual, but it's not endearing. I want something more catchy, like, you know, tenderly yours or something like that. But, you know, but what happens is I take that letter, man, and I turn it upside down. I, I look be, I, between the lines, under the lines, because, man, I want to know her, right? And that's exactly the way it is with this book, folks. We become so enamored with Christ that we just want to live. Everything I do, I want him to be pleased by it. So, Lord, everything, what I do with my wife, what I do with my kids, what I do at work, Lord, I just want you to permeate everything. And, and Lord, I don't want to ever stop. I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into my relationship with you because I love you. Paul says, that's what happens when you believe this way. You begin to live a life in which you live out the Christian life, not perfectly, but more and more pervasively in all areas. And you continue to go deeper in your walk with Christ. And, and not only that, but, but look, if you will, down at verse, uh, verse 11. Being strengthened with all strength according to the might of his glory for all endurance and patience. Now, um, God, in his humor, really helped me with this one this week. This is the idea of divinely enabled perseverance. One of the hardest things I wrestle with in life, and, and this, the perseverance he's talking about is being perseverant with both people and circumstances. And I... I bet if we started in the front and worked all the way to the back and back to the front, I bet every one of us could point to at least one thing this week in which we'd say, I did not like that circumstance or I did not like the way that person responded to me. I'm sure everybody, all of us could come up with at least one. And what he says here is, you know what? When you become Christocentric and you're focusing on God, not only are you living life, Christ, a Christ-like life in all areas, but God is working from the inside out to enable you to become patient with both people and circumstances. Um, I have a nephew who's, uh, he's still preschool age, but I always get nervous when he comes to my house. He doesn't always break something, <laughs> but he often does. He's broken, um, we have a lamp, he's knocked that over and broken it. One time he knocked over a lamp and it almost went, fell onto my monitor and destroyed my computer monitor, but it caught the chair right beforehand and just barely missed the thing. So I'm always, I'm always like nervous when he comes over. Well, I was working on this this week, you know, reading this and saying, you know, God, patience is important. I really need it in my life. I, I, don't, don't do that. I, I, don't pray for patience because God will give you all kinds of opportunity. <laughs> and sure enough, he comes over. We had a birthday party and we invited the, my little nephew over. Um, and, you know, I, I try to tell him, now, look, when you get downstairs, because I just put in a, um, spent a couple hundred dollars on, um, a, not a window, but a, a walk-in swing, sliding door. sliding door. Thank you, thank you. That's, right. that's one of those things. That's right, thank you. Okay. You know, because the one we had before was really bad. We finally got it out, put it in a nice screen. It actually moves real nicely. And, and. And so I said, no, Joseph, when you go down to eat out on the porch, I want you to go around the house. I, I, don't, I don't want you getting near that. You know, just let's go to the house. Does he listen to me? No, of course not. 
Well, he just kind of figures that a screen doors were meant to go through. And so he came up to that thing, and he just walked hard into it, and he just, until he went right through the thing. Well, he ripped the thing out. It fell down. The roller thing was all mad, of course. And, and I was upstairs at the time talking about him to some, to some of his of the, of the uh, other aunts and nephews. Yeah, I think he's doing better. You know, last time he did this. And all of a sudden, Dad! What? Joseph jo Oh, I thought it went down. And I went down there, and I, I couldn't help thinking to myself, God, you're allowing this to happen, aren't you? Yeah. And that's not to justify anything that he did. But, but once again, it was a moment for me, do I lose it with this kid and dishonor Christ? Or do I say, look, what he's done is a problem. We have to deal with it. I've told his parents, blah, 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 blah. All true, all true, all true. But I need to respond to this child with a level of patience that still communicates that I'm for him, even though I'm very much against what he's done. Isn't that true? And, and God helped me there. You know, I'm not going to invite him back for a little while now, but nonetheless, no. <laughs> not while I'm reading these passages, that's for sure. No, I, 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 and he's a cute kid. He came up to me before he left, and he hugged me, you know. And, uh, okay, and I just watch it next time, you know. And so I'm going to have to lock the door going, or I don't know what I'm going to do. But isn't God just like that in our lives? You know, read this stuff. But here's the point. Does God care the way I respond when my nephew breaks my screen door that I just had put in a few weeks ago? Absolutely. God cares about the specifics of life, brothers and sisters. That's what I love about Christianity. There's never a lost moment. There's tense moments. There's painful moments. But they're never lost. And Paul says, I pray that you will be so filled with Christ that he'll touch you in every area of life. That you go deeper with him. And that you'll learn when people or circumstances are a problem, I want to work in your soul in such a way that you respond appropriately. And lastly, the other thing I want to do in your life is there in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you for the share of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You know the last thing he talks about? People that are filled with Christ are thankful people. They are people who are thankful because they know where the whole thing is going. If you were a Jew, the, the, the group that was attacking Christians in Colossians, it was a strange view of conglomeration of Judaism. It was Judaism and a little bit of mysticism, all kinds of strange stuff. It's all kind of smushed together. And you had this Christian group that was feeling intimidated by these Jews. Well, the Jews talked all the time about having a share, an inheritance in the land. And Paul kind of turns that thing right back on them in this passage. He says, as he talks to Christians, he says, look, you can be thankful because you know what? You have an inheritance. You have a share. You have a part of a land in the future, in heaven, that will never be taken away from you. And it's yours, and you can just bank on it. He says, I want you to be thankful because you know where everything is going. And I want you to be thankful because I want you to remember where you've come from. You've come from being a lost sinner to one who's been rescued, taken out of the dominion of Satan and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so you know what? When a nephew breaks my screen, 
I'm still saved. I'm still redeemed. I still got an inheritance there. And if they have screens there, there won't be any problems with those. <laughs> no, isn't that true? Isn't that true? And, and look, that's, that's what he says. I mean, Christians are not um, masochists. When bad things happen, we don't say, oh, good, I just love it when bad things happen to me. Oh, come on, that's weird. <laughs> we are people, though, when bad things happen, we know there is a gracious, good God who's always up to something. And we know no matter what happens in this life, I'm secure. I, I will always be forgiven. I will always be in his kingdom. And I will always have that inheritance. And what that does is, it makes me thankful. I'm so lost in Christ that he touches everything in my life. He builds patience. I go deeper in my walk with him. And I have this spirit, this attitude of thanksgiving that tempers everything I do in life. And Paul says, that's what I want for you. I want you to, I, I am praying, Paul says, that you might know God's Christocentric plan more intimately so that you might live a Christocentric life more fully. And I would argue with you, but that's exactly what God wants for us. What I'd like to do in the next two weeks, I'd like to look how that affects specifically our personal life, our church life, our family life, and our community. Because he works through those four in Colossians 3 and 4. But at the end of the day, folks, I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to wait 10, 15 seconds till I pray. It's not because I forgot my prayer. Would you pray? Would you pray for me, for yourself, for your mate, for your friend, for the people sitting in front of you, behind you, that as a church, as the people of God, we might be lost in the person of Jesus Christ so that he changes the way we live throughout the week. Let's pray.